This is the Jocko Podcast Civil War Excursion Number Two with J.D. Baker and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, J.D. Good evening, Jocko. Soldiers of the Army of the Mississippi, I have put you in motion to offer battle to the invaders of your country. With the resolution and discipline and valor becoming men fighting as you are for all worth living or dying for, you can but march to a decisive victory over the agrarian mercenaries sent to subjugate you and to despoil you of your liberties, your property, and your honor. Remember the precious stake involved. Remember the dependence of your mothers, your wives, your sisters, and your children on the result. Remember the fair, broad, abounding land and the happy homes that would be desolated by your defeat. The eyes and hopes of eight millions of people rest upon you. You are expected to show yourselves worthy of your lineage, worthy of the women of the South, whose noble devotion in this war has never been exceeded in any time. With such incentives to brave deeds and with the trust that God is with us, your generals will lead you confidently to the combat assured of success. And that right there is General Albert Sidney Johnson giving a speech, a speech that was given to each regiment as they approached the Battle of Shiloh, which is going to be kind of the first really big battle in the Civil War. J.D., how do we get there? Last episode, we, we left off after Fort Sumner. And Lincoln is thinking, and I guess it's a, a, it's a fair assessment to say that, that Fort Sumner was kind of like a 9-11 moment, September 11th moment for the North. Because 1860, the Army, you know, you, you talked about this the last, the last episode. Army was... Tiny, really. I mean, in 1860, there was 16,000 total men and officers on the roll. Only 14,000 of them were present for duty. There was five general officers total. Most most people were most of the soldiers were posted west of the Mississippi. There's only 16 companies east of the Mississippi. This is just so. In 1860, the military is just absolutely tiny. Well, how many people are stationed on Camp Pendleton, California? Oh, thousands. <laughs> well, how about how about uh, any? What's what's what Marine Corps base did you spend the most time on? Uh, Lejeune. How many uh, people on Lejeune? You think? Oh, at least thirty-five thousand folks. Yeah. So in one base, there's twice as many people are there as there are soldiers before the war kicked off. So there, September 11th happens, which is Fort Sumner. And and now, now the now it's on. Now that being said, and I'd say this about September 11th too. People think, okay, well the war is going to kick off, but the war. What are we talking? Maybe a few months, four or five months, maybe to go down south, you know, 
beat back the Confederacy, we'll take everything back over. Is that what we're thinking up north? Oh yeah, I mean this is uh, yeah probably if you're if you're looking at it on that aspect, it's like a ninety day. Like <laughs> yeah, hey, we're just gonna it's a ninety day. Like hey man, uh, you know I could imagine you know with with the the amount of 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 sources available like going through there. I mean when you say like five general officers, there's probably like five general officers sharing a cubicle right now in the <laughs> Pentagon you know, in twenty twenty two. You know what I mean? Like. That just always is shocking. So when you're looking at the at the professional soldier, uh, you know it, it does take a lot. You know, you get done with the Mexican American War. Yeah, everything is out west because of Western expansion. So they they've got a lot of these uh, armies and stuff and companies that are out west. Uh, and you know, it's it's a lot dealing with the Native Americans uh, and protection uh, for these folks that are are moving west with Western expansion. Uh, if you're looking at the aspects of, of the size of the army and, and the comparison of, of Pearl Harbor, uh, even Abraham Lincoln is kind of looking like, I mean, he he's wanting them to bombard Fort Sumner because now that's going to give him northern buy-in. Like, you know what I mean? Like so he had a little bit of that. Uh, he wanted that. Uh, it's not a false flag attack, but he wanted it to get attacked so he could use it as some propaganda to start getting some troops masked up. Uh, right, because, uh, you know, I, I kind of look at it as if, okay, you've got all these states and they decide that they're just going to secede from the Union. So we're all, you know, so South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, you know, Virginia, they're all going to pop smoke. And as the President of the United States, you're like, well, we're going to stand up an army and we're going to go down there and, and we're going to bring them back into the Union. And people are like, well, they, they haven't. They haven't really done Meanwhile, anything. Meanwhile, some dude in New Hampshire is like, bro, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> what are you talking about? They want to leave? I'm up here. I got work to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? And they haven't really done anything. They're just talking right now. You know what I mean? So it's more like, oh, the states, they're just saying that. They're not really going to leave. And uh, But they are. They're, they're like leaving. But no shots have been fired yet. Uh, so it's almost like the same thing before we can, you know, even when you look at the Mexican-American War, I mean, they sent Zachary Taylor down there to kind of monkey around the Rio Grande. They pop a couple of shots. They send a memo back up, which was, you know, up up to D.C., let the president of the United States, hey, man, we're under fire. Go to Congress, declare war. Boom. We're in the Mexican-American War. Uh, so somebody's got to pull the trigger here. You know what I mean? If, uh, you know, like – Obviously, there was problems that were known prior to September 11th, that, that there was yep. bad people. Yep. You know what I mean? That's probably a, a fair thing to say that in the United States, we knew that there were individuals outside the United States that wanted to cause harm. But as the United States, we didn't just go over there and, and just you know, raise an army and invade their country. They, they, they've just done a lot of talk. You know what I mean? And they haven't really threatened American soil yet. So as the president, you kind of got to get some buy-in. So as soon as, you know, the old man pulls the lanyard, uh, you know what I mean? Dude, we just got northern buy-in because they're like, wait a minute. They just bombarded American soldiers at a federal fort in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, we're done with this little confederacy thing you guys think you're going to plan up up there so now now we're in so you can see that you know as lincoln being the president of the united states now when he goes to the his his northern 
folks, and he's looking for a, a raising of, of arms to come join into this fight, he's going to get a lot more buy-in. Right. So, so that's basically what's happening. So, you know, Lincoln, uh, you know what I mean? Is yeah, Sumner is is his. That's his nine eleven. Now, he's like you said, like a ninety day. Okay, it's going to take ninety days. We're going to go down there. We're going to kick the shit out of some people. It's all going to be good. We'll come back home. So their their primary initial raising of troops is like National Guard guys, right? Bringing guys on for like a ninety day enlist, enlistment type thing. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Because uh, you know the whole. Um, you know what I mean? The, the, the militia uh, that, you know, that, that has been in existence, hell, it's still in existence today. You know what I mean? If you're going to stand at the right to bear arms. Uh, you know what I mean? Was literally like meant something back then, meaning, yeah, okay, you got the rifle hanging over top of the, of the fireplace and you use it during hunting season. But if there's a call to arms, you're a part of the the militia, everybody's from the same little hometown, and you're going to stand up and you're going to join in with the the company, and then that company's got a regiment in the states, and they, they're going to send these folks down south to kind of quell this insurgency that's kind of taking place. So yeah, I mean, ninety days max, uh, you know what I mean? But then you got to look at like moving bodies. You know, okay, how do how do you move them? You know, it's either by water or it's by rail, or they're going to walk. Uh, and then they got to get their stuff, and then you got to like have stuff to supply them because you're going to have to feed them, you're going to have to clothe them. So you know it's a lot more. Uh, you know what I mean? When you kind of look at the aspects of, hey, we're going to stand up an army, uh, you know, even a, even a small army. And then you have to look at it as like like you had said earlier, like the dude in New Hampshire. He's like, dude, I got a job. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I run a gym in SoCal, man. I got to be at work tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got like nine kids at home. Like, you know what I mean? What I'm just gonna pop smoke. We're gonna go down there. But but then again, you also you got to look at it on the aspect of like the 911 of like, I mean, you remember the recruiting offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. in the United States military after 911, we were not having a recruiting oh, problem. No. No, like in Tim Kennedy, he was like, he went down to the recruiting officer September 12th and like the line was around the block, you know, and that's just one example. And that's in California, right? That like it, it, it was on. Yeah. And you remember like all the guys that like, because you and I served in the, in the same time frame of like all the guys that, that came in like, and so they missed desert storm and then there, there's like this dry spell. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, that's there's. Me. Yeah, there's like these little kind of hot pocket things that are kind of happening around the world. But if you're not on a specific unit and a specific team at a specific time, you're just going to miss it. And you know, so now you got these guys that are like, "Well, it doesn't look like anything's going to happen in the next four years. I'm I'm going to get out and I'm going to go back home, you know, go to college or just get a job." And and I'm kind of done with the military thing. And then bam, nine eleven hits. And then these guys are like, dude, I want back in. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? So now uh, that's even a problem. Then it's like, dude, I got skill sets. Okay, well, you left as a sergeant. You know what I mean? We can't, bring, dude. I don't care if you bring me back as a private rifleman. Uh, you know what I mean? I just want to be on the big bird that's going to cross the pond, and we're going to bring the wood to these people that that did these events in in New York, in the fields in Pennsylvania, and and to the Pentagon. Uh, so I, I could imagine, you know, back then when the word got out, uh, you know what I mean, of, of looking at the aspects of they just bombed, you know what I mean, a, a federal installation. That's the, that's the same as if 
it would happen today. I mean, there would be a, a call to arms. The president of the United States is, no matter who the president is, like you're going to get backed by the American people. They're they're going to back you at this event. This isn't this is unjust. Um, so yeah, when we left off the last time, and then you look at those, you know, the totals that are there. So the, you know, they're and and I wouldn't even. I, I think that you know, you and I we're using the references of the National Guard, but these guys aren't even at that level. Mm-hmm. Like these are just like novice. Novice guy, you know, they, they, they just come out and, it, you know, it, it's kind of cool to be – it's a drinking club. It's like a volunteer fire department, you know what I mean? Like it's a cool place to hang out, but, you know what I mean? We're really not going to go to war. It's just fun to go and, you know, I, I get away from the wife and the kids for a couple of days and, uh, you know what I mean? And uh, so I'm going to come out. Plus, you could imagine, you know, if you think this is going to be like a, a quickie, like you don't want to be the only guy that yeah. hung back. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when everybody's flying the flags and stuff, and and they're like, "What's what's where's Fred? <laughs> yeah, where's Fred?" Uh, you know, and and he's trying. It's it's kind of like uh, you know, one of my favorite movies is Old Yeller. Uh, I don't know if you ever you ever saw the movie, but uh, you know, Old Yeller when that one dude decides that he's going to hang back to kind of take care of the the women folk and the and the farm. Everybody's kind of looking at that guy like. Really, dude. <laughs> yeah, and even the women are looking at him like, "Dude, we're good. You can go." But he doesn't want to go. You know what I mean? So he's going to make it seem like he's he needs mm-hmm. to stay back. Uh, Man, nothing will ever beat the freaking World War One in England, where if a guy was like a military aged male and he wasn't and he wasn't in a freaking uniform, the the women would give him a white flower. That was like the coward. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you peer pressure your countrymen into going and getting it on. That's World War One, right? This is where you know, like your chances of survival are minimal if you're going to go over the lot, over the top, over there. Uh, but that's you know, you don't even necessarily need that. The, no, and the the peer pressure is going to come. Well, it's like I mean, you even uh, when you read uh, the the letter that was read prior to the Battle of Shiloh, I said that's exactly World War One. I. I mean, when you go back through and you read. You know what he's calling out of the 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 women. Uh, you know what I mean of of who you're defending and and who you're standing up for. I mean he's he's calling them out uh, like you know why you're here and and who you represent. Yeah. Uh, uh, that speech that that's written out prior to that is is, is that's a that's a pretty good one. Um, so so the North kind of put is putting it together, and they're probably of the mind that. You know, we're going to kind of get this done pretty quick. Um, one of the first larger battles, the first battle of Manassas, um, which is in Manassas, Virginia. The the Union calls this the Battle of Bull Run. The, the Union thinks this is going to be a pretty easy victory for them rolling down there. It doesn't work out that way. No, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's. It's you know, the Manassas is like a, a a hop, skip, and a jump just south of D.C. I mean, you cross over the Potomac, you come down uh, the uh, the Manassas Battlefield Park, beautiful uh, part of Virginia uh, that's in there. Uh, that same guy that we kind of talked about before with Beauregard and Anderson uh, down there. So now Beauregard is up in Virginia. So Beauregard was the guy that was commanding the. The Confederate troops at Fort Sumter during that initial attack. So now this guy Beauregard, who had just attacked his professor, his his professor at West Point, 
now he's up at Manassas, and who's he, who's he fighting against up there? Uh, McDowell. <laughs> uh, Who, who's one of his classmates? Yeah, they're classmates together. Uh, you know what I mean? That would be like me going against some of my classmates of 2005. Uh, you know what I mean? It's just unimaginable. Uh, now you got these two folks, and 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 a lot of the folks back then, uh, you know, in, in some of the readings when you look at the at the battle of of, of it taking place, um, you know, with being novice, so you've got this voluntary force of a bunch of folks that are kind of coming in, and, and it's not it's not the professional military that we kind of have of today. Uh, you know what I mean? So now you've got like a, a slim picking of officers. Well, a lot of the officers that resigned their commission after the Mexican-American War now are all trying to get back in. Uh, so, you know, b- so before the battle on both sides of the fence, there, you know, of course, you know, you're a West Point grad, uh, you know, coming in, that, that's going to weigh heavy. Uh, on, on selection of, of officers. And then you kind of look at him of like, okay, well, what did the guy do in the Mexican-American War? Okay, he was a young officer. So now you're kind of like taking like a, a, a young uh, Marine lieutenant uh, or Lieutenant JG in the Navy. And now we're going to make him a general. Okay, so the last time you were in charge of like 30 people, now we're going to put you in charge of like a couple of thousand people. Uh, to the upwards of, you know, you got divisions, you've got brigades, you've got, you know, a regiment, uh, you know, a, a regiment is set out to be somewhere around like a thousand, you know what I mean? If, if you've got a thousand folks uh, that are in there and then you've got brigades, you've got the division, and then you've got corps, uh, and then you've got like an army, you know what I mean? So when you're looking at like an, an army, <clears throat> you know, I mean, it could be 60,000 people. Well, when you look at some of these guys, they haven't been in charge of 60,000 people. I mean, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, like you said before, like this is a company that is growing at an extreme rate. Uh, and they're coming from all over, uh, both the north and the south. I mean, you've got folks, just like we had said earlier, that have, they've never left their state before. So you got folks coming as far as, you know what I mean, from Mississippi and Alabama that are heading up into Virginia. You got folks from Connecticut. You got Maine. You got Wisconsin. I mean, you got Ohio. And these folks are trying to make their way uh, into the capital. And then you got a lot of these guys that are coming in that are looking for positions. Uh, and, and a lot of them are immediately coming in. And, of course, they want to be you know, a general officer like why not just, you know, if you're going to go, go big. Uh, you know what I mean? I, what do you, you, okay, you were a lieutenant, J.D., now you want to be a general. <laughs> yep, that's right, man, make me a general. Uh, and it's, it's also because of, you know, if you're thinking that the war is going to be short, now you got a guy that, that you had spoke on the last one when you talked about Sherman down at LSU. You know, well, Sherman's down there. Well, Sherman's got a different vision of this 90-day war kind of thing. I mean, even Winfield Scott uh, you know what I mean? Thought that it would take, you know, what was it like over 60,000 people, uh, you know what I mean, to be able to, to stand up. I mean, that's a lot of people to come in. And he thought it was going to take a couple of years. Yeah, it's like five times bigger than than what they had in 1860. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so he's going to increase size by, by at least five times. And he thinks it's going to even take a couple of years. So this is... You know, your senior – I mean, if you're looking at it of, like, folks with military experience in the United States at that time, like Winfield Scott's the guy. Uh, you know what I mean? Zachary Taylor, him, they were both down the Mexican-American War. But, you know, Winfield Scott's the guy. He stayed a professional soldier. Uh, 
very well respected uh, in the administration. Um, but then when you look at the folks that are that are going to come in uh, for this first battle, uh, they even talked of like, you know, like local folks from D.C., like getting in their carriages and stuff and like following the army down because they want to go spectate. Let's go like, watch. Yeah, like this is the state fair. Like, you know what I mean? We're going to go watch. Um, and it's just going to be you know, the union's going to get routed uh, and then they're going to get pushed back into D.C. And that that's not going to look well, uh, you know, for the president or, or for the union. Uh, and because you're looking at, at recruiting aspects of it, I mean, how is it looking on the Confederacy side? Because uh, they're going to move the capital of the Confederacy out of Montgomery, and they're going to move it into Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and when you move it up into Richmond, Virginia, I mean, the distance between, you know, I live like smack dab, Spotsylvania, Virginia, Fredericksburg is like literally in the middle between D.C. and Richmond. So now you've got these two capitals that are literally, you know what I mean, a hop, skip, and a jump from each other. Uh, and the battle is going to take place just north of Fredericksburg. So it's going to be like in between the Rappahannock River and where the Potomac River is, like right up in there of that Occoquan, Fairfaxy kind of area. So that's the area we're talking about. Uh, and and the, the Union is going to get defeated. Uh, in the first battle of Manassas or, or Bull Run uh, of how you're looking at it. So the Union kind of realizes like, okay, we're going to need more people. Like, <laughs> okay. Uh, and what's interesting, we talked about this a little bit on the last one. You got Baltimore who is, you know, obviously in Maryland, which was which is a slave state, was a slave state, before they join the Union or stay with the Union. But as the Union is trying to ship people down to fight, Baltimore is like trying to stop it from happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, like rioting. They're going to come and, you know, so they got you. So here you are, you know, you're, you're riding on a, on a rail car. You're all excited. You're coming from Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, you name it. And then you get down to Baltimore and like the, those people aren't happy out there that we're coming through. Uh, through Balt, so they're trying to stop the progress. Uh, you know what I mean? Talk about bringing friction in. You know, you, you've, you're learning that you've got to get people, and a lot of people, and you got to start standing up armies uh, that are going to have to deal with this uh, this insurgency that's taking over uh, in the Confederacy. And so these people are coming in. So yeah, the folks in Baltimore, like Maryland, it is a slave state and it's a split state. Uh, you got to look at it as the people in Baltimore are looking like their livelihoods are going to be affected. Like if this gets abolished, like we're going to have to start making another plan because now we got to like, what are we going to like start paying people? You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? I can't have slavery. I can't just work them. I can't own these. I mean, so it, it, this is a, a huge shift uh, to a lot of folks uh, in the United States. I mean, not to, not that it's even close to comparison, but like you, know, you and I were both working at the same time, uh, and we were you know getting ready for Gettysburg, and we have a pandemic hit, and we got to go like online. I mean, that was a huge yeah. shift in America. I mean, it was a new way of thinking. So this is something that that's a huge way uh, that's being pushed by the Union, and and Baltimore's is giving resistance. So now they're going to have to start moving some of the troops through at night. I mean, now it's got to be timed. Um, and 
you know, I always kind of look back at it as, okay, so here you are, you know, you're, you think you're working in it's, it's like when, when George Washington decided that, Hey, we're going to stand up a continental army. We're going to go against, you know, like the, the, the crown in England, but you still have loyalists that are in and amongst you living next door to you. Uh, you know what I mean? So now you've got these folks that, you know, you're in Maryland, you're in Pennsylvania. Well, you've got Southern sympathizers that are living amongst you. So anything they can do to disrupt that machine as well. Uh, and then you've got, you know, folks that, okay, who's going to run these armies? Uh, and as they come in, and of course, they're all kind of jockeying for, for general officers. The, the one that I'll, I'll bring up just because I think is, is, is super cool is, uh, you know, when you talked about Sherman, so Sherman comes in because he's a, he's a West Pointer. He, he fought in the Mexican-American War, and everybody's going in straight for general. They want that. And Sherman comes out, and they're like, hey, dude, what would you get? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a colonel. They're like, dude, man, you could have, like, easily gotten general. He goes, I'll earn general. Check. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sherman's a different, you know, of course, then everybody, you know, it, they're going to call him crazy. Uh, of course, because mm-hmm. he's he's not fitting the mold as everybody else. You know, he's making those kind of statements down at at you know, modern day LSU. He's speaking truth. I mean, he he's he's has a vision yeah. and sees what takes place. So Sherman's a different kind of guy. Um, he's got an elevated view of an elevated view of what's going on for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, um so. As these, you know, as these troops are now kind of moving into position throughout from the north towards the south, uh, you know, you got you, you got skirmishes happening. You got you know people running into Union troops. You got resistance, uh, kind of like chance contacts going on. Cavalry will be getting into engagements. You know, as they're out doing scout, they'll get some resistance, and then you get to the Battle of Seven Pines. This is May. May 31st to June 1st, 1862. Uh, General McClellan, called little, he's popular, Little Mac. Why does everybody like General McClellan? Uh, Well, you know, uh, McClellan, uh, calling him Little Mac. So he he gets, uh, he gets, uh, you know, general officer and he's going to be the, uh, the, the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, you know, when you look at the Army of the Potomac, uh, it's right there in Virginia, the Potomac River. Um, if you look at like different armies or different organizations, the Army of the Potomac is the 100% manned. They get the best gear and equipment. You know what I mean? They're 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 like varsity. Mm-hmm. They're, they're getting all the stuff. You know what I mean? The guys that are standing up armies out west, they're JV. Uh, you know what I mean? They're you know they're not getting the attention because he's right there with the Capitol. I mean, he's right there uh, with the president. He's got Winfield Scott. He's I mean, he is he's in the mix. And <clears throat> you know when you look at at Little Mac, the uh, the interesting thing about McClellan when he becomes the Army Commander uh, of the Potomac, of course, he's got to come up with a plan. Uh, and and McClellan, one, if you kind of look at it, McClellan was a status quo guy. He was one of those guys that kind of believed of, hey, dude, just let them do what they've been doing. Like, you know what I mean? Which, Yeah, and that's an interesting, you know, even we were talking about people in Baltimore. Status quo was a thing. Like, there's not too many people in America right now. You say, hey, are you conservative or are you liberal? 
there's not too many people say, hey, I kind of like it's okay the way it is. You know, the conservatives are saying we got to bring it back to this. The liberals are we got to change that. A, a legitimate kind of political viewpoint at this time period was like, hey, let's just keep it what we got. Just hold what you got. Just the status quo. And so you get these people that are status quo and and little Mac being one of them. Hey, real quick, Army of the Potomac. This is just a, a naming convention that, that we need to cover right now because it can get confusing. The, the Union armies are named after rivers. That's, the, that's, what, that's their naming convention. So you're going to hear a bunch of these different armies, and sometimes it can get confusing because you got rivers in America that are called things like the Mississippi <laughs> and called things like the Tennessee River. So it can get real confusing real quick. What are the, what are the Confederate um, armies named after? Like the you know the, the Army of Northern Virginia, the Army of Mississippi, meaning like of, yep. not the. Yep. Uh, so it's going to get a little confusing if you don't pay attention to that. But just remember that the the Northern armies are named after rivers. So Army of the Potomac. Um, so General McClellan, he's he's. I, I cut you off when you were saying that he's kind of a status quo guy, not looking to be super dynamic. No, uh, <laughs> not at all. Uh, you know, and and I, I think with with him, he's got uh, he's got political views. I mean, he ends up running for president in '64. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys, uh, you know, the uh, I I guess I should use the term with them. Uh, you know, what I mean, if you make me a general officer, a with them is is what's in it for me after uh, the thing. So a lot of these guys are coming with a, a little bit of an agenda of like, okay, yeah, hey, if I join up one. Uh, you know, it's it's this it's this civil war that takes place. I'm a general officer. If I serve with distinction, uh, you know, what I mean, I, I might gain something out of it, uh, you know, in the end. Uh, and I, I would say that that plays a bigger part on the Union side than it does on the Confederate side. Like the Confederate generals that are down there, they just want to be left alone and let us run our own. Country. We, we're done with this United States thing, with the Union. We're creating our own country, and we just want you guys to just leave us alone and let us just keep doing what we're doing kind of a thing. So there's like there's, you know, I mean, when Jefferson Davis is he's unanimously picked to be the president of the Confederacy, it's not like they didn't even have it. Like, there's no election. Like, you know, does Robert E. Lee's like, man, I think that, you know, if I serve with distinction, I'll be president of the Confederacy. Like, there's nobody kind of jockeying mm -hmm. uh, to, to get rid of Davis. They, they just want to, hey, man, we're just, you know, we're going to form these states uh, in the Confederacy uh, with Davis, and we're going to keep running how we're running. We don't need this big federal government thing kind of telling us how we're, how we're going to run and how our states are going to be ran. We're all going to be a coalition of states, and, and we're going to run it the way we see fit. So when McClellan uh, gets these aspects, you know, and, and if you look at the at the map, like I said, again, like back during the, the Civil War, uh, anytime we kind of look at at a general officer, uh, there's a lot of folks, there's statements that are made that uh, amateur study tactics, professionals study logistics, uh, especially at that level, uh, because you logistically have to move 120,000 people and all their stuff. Uh, so, you know, back then you're either going to walk them, you're going to put them on a train, or you're going to put them on a boat. Uh, and we already talked about, you know, so you got the distance that's coming in. So after the, the first battle of Manassas, you've got this uh, McClellan, 
you know, Tiger it, McDowell's out, uh, you know what I mean? And, and he's going to take this formed Army of the Potomac, and he's got he's got to brief his plan to the boss. So he's going to do what he's going to do, a peninsula campaign, which that's where we get to the um, the Seven Pines down there. So the peninsula, you know, Norfolk, because uh, you either got two choices. You either get on the Telegraph Road, which is uh, modern-day Route 1, Okay. That runs from D.C. Of course, now we got 95. So it's basically like if you put it in today's terms, we're going to hop on 95, and in two hours, we're going to be in Richmond. So we can either go over by land, or we can just swoop in and around, put everybody on a boats. We can float them down the Potomac, out into the bay, and come right I mean, Norfolk, you know, phenomenal naval base, uh, and then just come right up the peninsula. So the distance, and then you got to look at, like, okay, logistically, how am I going to support these folks? You know what I mean? Well, logistically, yeah. I mean, we've got a Navy. You can just logistically support by by water. Uh, you know what I mean? It, it's easily supported logistically. Uh, if you look at it on the other aspects, the riverways, when you get down like to the Rappahannock River, if we talk about like Fredericksburg, if you blow the rail line, which the rail line are blown in Fredericksburg, you know what I mean? Now you're going to have to offload everything. It's logistically going to be a lot harder moving that much stuff. I mean, if you look at us even today in the military, I mean, we move a lot uh, by naval. I mean, we can move cities worth oh, of yeah. stuff. Uh, so he's going to make this decision. He's going to go down and he's going to fight the Peninsula campaign. This is McClellan. Just McClellan. To yeah. McClellan Little Mac. says, all right, yep. I'm going to go fight this Peninsula campaign. Yep. I'm going to put all the guys, bunch of guys, put them on boats. We're going to float down. We're going to hop off. We're going to fight this Peninsula campaign. And it's a short A to B distance right up, cross over the Chickahominy, and bam, man, we're up the James and we are in Richmond. We'll overthrow the Capitol. Easy peasy. War's over, man. You know what I mean? We just took the Capitol. Uh, well, you know, it was, there's a problem. The Confederates don't want to give it up that easy. Uh, so, you know, they get down there, and then they get into what a distinctive battle of the Seven Pines. Um, that is also when, you know, so Lee uh, at that time, at the beginning of the war, Lee is a, an advisor. He's a military advisor to Jefferson Davis. He's not a combatant commander at the time. Uh, due to attrition, uh, general officer, another Johnson, goes down. Uh, his number two guy, XO, is Gustavus W. Smith, which, of course, everybody remembers old Gustavus. Uh, he was in command for about 24 hours because, you know, as soon as Davis is like, hey, dude, what are you going to do? He's like, oh, I'm going to need more resources. Yeah. We don't have any more resources. That's not a plan. You know what I mean? Bobby, you're in. Uh, and Robert E. Lee, steps on the field uh, to take command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, he had already established a relationship with, with Jackson, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, and he's going to – Stonewall Jackson, you know, so he's got this threat coming in on Peninsula. So, of course, he's going to take this guy. And when you have a nickname like Stonewall, uh, you know what I mean? That's like a, that's like a pretty good one to get. Uh, you know what I mean? So they're going to send Jackson and – Robert E. Lee's going to send him up into the valley. So he's going to do – there's the valley campaign that kind of goes on. Well, you know, Lincoln's number one worry is like D.C., protecting Baltimore, D.C. I mean, it's, it's huge protection of D.C. Well, you get Jackson up there running around. You know what Nothing I mean? safe. <laughs> Nothing safe with Jackson. Uh, and he's proven it because he's sending other armies out there to try to – you know, banks and some of these guys are trying to intercept Jackson. And he's just – Jackson's foot mobility of infantry is just unmatched in the valley. 
it's just it's it's amazing what Jackson's doing out there. Uh, the amount of movement, you know, with with Jackson, and he's winning. So the morale uh, of underneath Stonewall Jackson is very high uh, because everybody wants to play for a winning team. I mean, Jackson's becoming very popular. Uh, and he's, and you know, just a, a little back history, a little bit. You know, so Jackson, he was a he was a professor. He taught at, at the Virginia Military Institute uh, prior to the war. Uh, and as an instructor, uh, like, you know, today, like, you know, you got kids, I got kids, they go to college and stuff. They got that ratemyprofessor.com stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and the kids can like take a course and JD's the course. And then they can, they can go on and tell JD, oh, he sucked. I didn't like him. He was this bad. If they had ratemyprofessor.com at VMI, Jackson would have been the most hated professor at VMI. And why is that? Uh, he just, uh, he just, wasn't very well liked uh he was uh i mean nothing nothing wrong with it he was uh presbyterian extremely religious uh you know he uh he very strict um and i I think because of of some of his upbringing um he he didn't he kept a lot of information close hold he didn't trust a lot of other people um and you know, needless to say, that could be from a lot of the peer kind of peer leadership. You know what I mean? He was, if he's not one of the guys that is not partaking in the the you know the barbecues on the weekend, uh, you know what I mean? Sundays he's devoted to church, family, that kind of stuff. So you know, he's one of those guys that just doesn't fit in uh, with the, the the cool club kids. Uh, you know what I mean? That are doing stupid stuff. But when Stonewall shows up, he's going to go to work, uh, and when he goes to work. He's, you know, you're gonna if if you're working for Stonewall Jackson, you know you're gonna get up in the morning, you're gonna get on the road, you're gonna face to the right, you're gonna hike anywhere between twenty to twenty five miles. There's gonna be a gunfight at the end, uh, and he and he's gonna bring the wood, uh, and he's gonna win, and then you're gonna hike back out. I mean, there's a that valley campaign of the movements that that guy's doing and around the valley. Uh, you know, what I mean, like we had talked, you know, kind of before the terrain of. You know, looking at some of the hills in the Shenandoah Valley area, uh, it's and these guys are like no shoes. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they're they're doing some serious movements, uh, and they they got their their home on their back, uh, and they're moving it around and, and they're winning. Uh, and so Lee is going to send Jackson up in the valley because he's he knows that if if Jackson goes up and then the word's going to get out. To Abraham Lincoln, he's gonna be like, "Well, okay, Stonewall's in the valley. Is he is he coming up the valley, and is he gonna make a threat towards Washington D.C.? So, if I'm the commander in chief, and you're you're asking for more resources down there, because one thing McClellan was like really good at was exaggerating the numbers. Like that dude, uh, you know what I mean? There there would be, you know, Robert E. Lee would have fifty five thousand folks. Oh, he's got one hundred and ten. I mean, he's gonna he's gonna exploit the numbers just insane. So he's telling small lies, or in some cases, probably big lies, in order to get more resources. Yeah, yeah. If he, this is this is McClellan. Yeah, this is McClellan. So McClellan's, you know, gets word from his cavalry, his scouts, that there's whatever fifty thousand people. He's gonna tell his boss there's a hundred thousand enemy oh, yeah. fighters. And if this isn't, and this. He, this is a, this is his pattern. This is his pattern. Uh, you know what I mean? Because then that's going to uh, delay 
anything that he's going to going to have to do. Like, I mean, you know, the, the president, you know, uh, Winfield Scott, these guys are like, dude, what, when are you, when are you going to attack? Well, I mean, he's just like slow rolling, mm-hmm. you know, the, the commander in chief because he, he keeps exact, you know, he's got that guy Pinkerton, you know, private kind of, you know, uh, Intel guy. And of course, you know, if, if you hire me, I'm going to tell, you know, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. Oh, there's a, there's a shitload of them there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we thought it was 50000 I heard this guy's coming from here and this guy's coming from up there. So they're going to inflate the numbers to try to get more resources. Uh, and, and you could see it uh, even in the writings and, and, and in the books of, of his communications with his wife. Uh, McClellan is a little Napoleon. Uh, he thinks very highly of himself. Um, and with, when you look at it of, of McClellan and why do the troops like him? Because he's keeping them alive because they're not doing anything. You know, and, and McClellan is not one as a commander to put his personal self at risk. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. he's not going to put himself out there, and that's a pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? He's going to stay in the rear. He's not going to go out. You know what I mean? He's, he's not going to, you know, he's, so he's not seen. Uh, you know, during battle uh, that takes place out there. And uh, so now he's going to go up against and, – and the problem is is everybody goes to West Point and everybody kind of knows everybody and everybody was kind of down in the Mexican-American War. So everybody kind of knows the character of each one of these individuals. Uh, and then now you're going to bring in this guy, Bobby Lee. Uh, and Robert E. Lee, you know, at the beginning, everybody's kind of thinking like, man, it's, it's Robert E. Lee. Well, I mean, he had nicknames too. You know, I mean, down in cell block uh, with the privates and stuff sitting around, you know, they got this whole thing of like this digging in. Like, what's this, what's this digging in stuff? Like, what's this fortifications? What is it? That's not manly. That's not how we fight. This is so Robert E. Lee is oftentimes pushing – set up defensive positions, get out your shovels, dig in. We're going to hold what we got right now, which is in the view of the troops, the frontline troops, cowardly. Yeah, I mean, they call him the king of spades. <laughs> As in spade shovel. Yeah, like spade the shovel, not like a cool spade. You know what Didn't I mean? they call him granny too? Oh, yeah, granny Lee. Because, uh, you know, which, you know, we, we've talked about this before when, you know, just uh, you and I up at uh, – up at Gettysburg, you know, I mean, Lee's in his 50s. Well, of course, yeah, when I was a kid at eight years old, the first time I went to, you know, VMI and I'm seeing Robert E. Lee, I'm like, man, that dude was old. Now I sit across the table from you, I'm like, that dude's in the prime of his life, man. <laughs> <laughs> but to the young soldiers, you know what I mean? He's this old man. Uh, so they were calling him Granny Lee. He's not the the Robert E. Lee that everybody's kind of uh, thinks about, you know, towards, you know, after the war and, and what he is. He's not as prominent. Uh, I would probably put Stonewall Jackson uh, coming in early in the war and, and all the way up to 63 is probably becoming the most – he is the most popular general in the Confederacy, uh, Stonewall. Uh, I mean, just because he's, he's making the paper, he's making his name, and, and but they're going to bring in uh, Robert E. Lee. Uh, and, and Robert E. Lee – uh, you know, is going to uh, he's going to defeat and push back uh, the Army of the Potomac to where now he's going to put a dilemma on McClellan. Uh, so McClellan is going to have to make a decision of like, man, we're not going to be able to take Richmond. 
so do I just bring in the, the boats and put everybody back and go on back up to the you know up the up the Potomac and 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 regroup and and kind of go at this again and you could only imagine like the amount of resources and the amount of information that, that he's pushing up to DC that you know the president of the United States and these guys up in DC are, are not happy with what they're kind of getting down there on the peninsula campaign uh, but you know, relieving a general officer, pulling from his command, uh, is going to be. Uh, I mean, that, that's a difficult decision because these guys are very well connected uh, politically uh, as well. Uh, so as, as they they pull back off the peninsula, we end up getting you know the the second battle of, of Bull Run, Battle of Manassas, and uh, and they're going to bring in other commanders that that are going to come in and. At the, at the second battle, McClellan's going to slow roll, uh, and he's getting orders to, to release folks up there uh, to, to, to take part uh, in the battle, and, and he's going to slow roll the other commanders, almost kind of like sending a, a message of like— So he doesn't provide support no. with his team to the other team that's in a pitched battle. Right. He decides, no, nah, I'm not going to send you any support. Yep. Or um, he, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll get it started. They'll be there tomorrow or whatever. He slow rolls the execution, and they end up getting beat again. Yep, they end up getting beat again, and then you know now they're going to put Lincoln into a predicament to where they're going to put him back in command. They're going to combine those armies there and bring them all underneath McClellan. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of turmoil uh, that's going on amongst the officers. Uh, you know, the book that, that we have laying here on the table, the one of Lincoln's lieutenants, uh, it's a, a great read uh, into the insights of the, the officers, the general officers in the Army of the Potomac, and what Lincoln is having to deal with, uh, with some of these guys that just don't drama. Want yeah, drama. Like, literally, it's the housewives of the Army of the Potomac. Like, literally. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they could have a, a whole episode of this stuff just going on, of just the the drama that's going on in, in and around the general officers and yeah you know there's when uh when i'm trying to help companies hire people you know one of the things i advise them to do if it's possible for them to do it is put them in this put them in the situation that they're going to be working in so, so can you hire them as a contractor for 90 days and you figure out what they're like even when people say who's going to make it through seal training well you the, the only way to figure out who's going to make it through seal training is by putting them in some kind of similar situation, you know, some kind of similar situation that is very similar to SEAL training, and then you might have an indication. So that's kind of what we got going on here. It's not like these, many of these senior officers, they haven't gone through the, the, the ranks, and like you said, they haven't led a platoon, and then led a company, and then been a battalion XO, and then been a battalion commander, and then gone up through the chain to where they, they've proven themselves. So you're throwing these guys into positions where it's like, hey, they might not be good at this job, and they don't have any time to learn it, so you're gonna kinda get what you get, and there's gonna be drama. Yeah, they're learning it on the fly. Uh, you know, uh, run around and then, you know, because uh, even though you've got so, uh, like these West Point guys, well, you still got to have like regimental commanders and stuff. And you're still standing these folks up that are all coming from the same hometowns. Uh, you know what I mean? So they're all joining together, the joining of arms. And then kind of at the beginning, it's kind of like, you know, if, if we're here and 
in uh you know in, in San Diego County and everybody's like, yeah, hey, we got a thousand folks over here. Well, who who should be the colonel? Well, let's take a vote, man. You know what I mean? I, I you know I, I think Echo should be the the colonel. Okay, he's the colonel. Now, what what military background? You know what I mean? Like it, you know, you're just a, a good guy. And, and of course, people are just wanting to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, at that level, yeah, that's a huge jump. Uh, you know what I mean? Of uh, of of being in charge of that many folks. So yeah, they're they're trying to figure it out on the fly. And then of course, people have favorites. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you got you, you try to look out for your favorites of who the guys are. This uh, is the legit good old boy network on both sides, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I mean, it it is very difficult, but you know, so they they push them off the the Battle of Seven Pines. Uh, there's also you know other events that are that are taking place out west. Um, you know what I mean? So uh, the Battle of Pea Ridge out in Arkansas, up in the Ozarks, uh, takes place in the early parts of March of 1862, uh, and it's out the trans uh, kind of the Trans Mississippi kind of area that's out there. And, you know, if you look at it in the Midwest with that expansion kind of thing, you know, what I mean, St. Louis, I mean, that's a that's a that's a prominent uh, city at the time uh, to be able to have control over that. Um, and then, you know, it, it's the, the playing in of that, the Trans-Mississippi, the Battle of Pea Ridge, some of us uh, can refer to it as the, the Gettysburg of the West, uh, you know, where you have uh, General Curtis, uh, he's running with the Union, and he got Van Dorn uh, out at the Battle of Pea Ridge. Um, with inside of, of the battle that takes place out there, after this battle, uh, there's it basically eliminates that entire region of the United States throughout the, the Civil War and, and keeps in control of the Union mm-hmm. uh, within inside of that region. Uh, one of the most interesting things about uh, the Battle of, of Pea Ridge that took place out there is uh, the Confederacy were able to go over to the Indian Territory uh, in Oklahoma, and they stood up a couple of regiments of Cherokee mm-hmm. to come fight for the Confederacy, which uh, a lot of folks don't know. You know what I mean? I, I couldn't imagine the recruiting spin that was going on over there. Uh, obviously, they're probably still a little bit upset with the whole Indian removal thing mm-hmm. and the trail of tears that, that got them out there. So they convinced and stand up a couple of these regiments of, of, of uh, Native Americans to come fight for the Confederacy. And, and it's not really recorded or thought, but I, I wonder if they were like, yeah, hey, dude, you guys come fight with us, man. We'll give you North Georgia back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean? We'll, we'll move you back in. But the, the problem is, is uh, after the Battle of Pea Ridge, they end up finding this, like, a small detachment of Union soldiers that are killed and scalped. Hmm. And they kind of have to go to the, the Cherokee, like, hey, dude, that, that's great. You guys are coming out. Plus, they didn't really conform to the whole, like, instant obedience to order, like the whole military thing. You know what I mean? They kind of fight different. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? We kind of do what we want to do. And what do you mean? There's no scalping. Uh, you know what I mean? So they sent them back. Uh, you know, but there was uh, actually Native Americans that fought for the Confederacy uh, against the United States of America. Uh, but when they, you know, the whole scalping thing kind of started taking place. And uh, there was no more Confederate, really, threat in that trans 
Mississippi area uh, after the Battle of Pea Ridge, uh, held in by by by, uh, by General Curtis, and then that that secured St. Louis, which was a that was a huge key victory. Like if you're looking at strategy, uh, you know, strategically that that battle of Pea Ridge was huge uh, for the Union. So so thinking of strategy, talk to us about the Anaconda plan. This is Winfield Scotts, who's the who's the northern commander of the armies. What's his plan overall on how to beat the Confederate States? Uh, yeah, so Winfield Scott's going to come up with uh, it's it, it gets tagged um, the Anaconda plan, and you know you look at the Anaconda. You know earlier we talked about like being in Panama and seeing an Anaconda, waterborne snake. It's constrictor, like something I don't want to be caught in the water with. You know what I mean? Especially that large of a snake. Um, so uh, you know you've got this insurgency, if you call it, you know, an insurgency of the, these Confederate states that are kind of down there. So he's going to have to kind of like throw a line around it. So you know he's going to anchor the tail of the anaconda snake in Washington D.C. and then the snake's going to run down the Potomac River. It's going to go into the Chesapeake Bay. It's going to run down and around Florida. It's going to come up the Gulf Coast and then into the Mississippi River. And that's the head of the snake is coming from west to east. So they're going to, you know, they're going to cut off resources to the Confederacy with a naval blockade. And they're going to control the riverways with these armies. So they're going to start sending armies with a Western theater campaign. You know, so you've got the Army of the Ohio, the Army of the James, or the Ohio, the Cumberland, the Army of the Tennessee, the Army of the Gulf. Uh, you know what I mean? The Army of the Mississippi that are going to be, and then you've got the Army of the Potomac that's going to deal with this Eastern kind of theater aspect. But when you look at the Anaconda plan, with the head of the snake coming from the West, that's the focus of main effort. Like they've got to secure the West before they can start the constrictor of the snake uh, to the Confederacy. So, you know, for the the metaphor, metaphors matter because they're memorable. Uh, so when you actually look at it on a strategic aspect of the Anaconda plan, if you can't even read or write, you can look at the cartoon. This is what we're this, doing. Yeah. Hey, this is what we're doing. Okay, I got it. You know, first thing we got to do is we got to control the waterways. Uh, and, and they're doing a, a pretty good job of it. So as you have some of you know, you got the Trans-Mississippi uh, with the Battle of Pea Ridge. That's kind of secure. Uh, we don't really know what we're doing over here on the East Coast with the Army of the Potomac kind of thing. You know, we got a lot of drama uh, going on. Uh, and then you're going to start sending these armies of the West uh, down you know, to start controlling these waterways of the, the Cumberland River, the Tennessee River, the Mississippi River. So you're going to put these, uh, you know, these armies into motion. So you've got the Army of the Tennessee, uh, you've got the Army of the Ohio, uh, they're going to start making their way to start being the head of that snake. Uh, and that's what's going to get us into this first like big battle that you kind of talk about. Like Shiloh is going to be the it's going to be the first big show. It's kind of like, you know, we've been looking at a little, not really, I hate to, to downgrade it of, of kind of like it's preseason. 
the yeah. other battles up to now are preseason a little bit. Yeah, now we're going to get it. I mean, this is this is going to be a big show. I mean, this is going to be the the Battle of Shiloh out in the West. This is going to be uh, a a first uh, of of what they call. I mean, even the book that you kind of read from, you know, called "In Hell Before Night." Uh, and the other uh, attributes of, of seeing the elephant, this is going to be a baptism of fire that nobody has seen. Like, we haven't seen it at this scale uh, of what's going to take place in Shiloh. And so it's Shiloh, but Shiloh's not really the uh, decisive terrain here. The decisive terrain is south of the town of Shiloh. It's a, it's a city, and city's probably a strong word because I've been to Corinth, Mississippi. <laughs> Corinth, Mississippi is a little town a relatively small town and but it's got it's got multiple railways coming in passing through it so it's a strategic it's a strategic town and the confederates want to protect it because like you said we got these big art western armies moving west moving southwest to try and get get control of the mississippi and uh or and of the tennessee river as well so the Confederates know this. They know that the North is heading south. So what, is, what, do, what do the Confederates do? They move north. They push north above Cor- Corinth, Mississippi, to stop the Union forces before they get to Corinth and they, move, they get to a place called Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh, Tennessee is just like, like a little, is it even a town? What do you call it? Is it a town, I guess, Shiloh? I don't even know if it would get the term town. Uh, like you said, it's I mean, an area. It's I a, guess it's an, there's a church, so there's this little the, Shiloh church, and then there's a there's a, a landing area called Pittsburgh Landing, which is on the Tennessee River. And as Grant and his army push down, this is where they decide they're going to uh, they're gonna they're gonna pull in. They're going to pull in because again they're looking at this this <laughs> metropolitan area not so much Corinth but but it's a strategic area like I said so you got that's General Grant and then you got another another northern general General Buell who's leading the army of the the Ohio and what they're trying to do they're both trying to get there they're both trying to get to Corinth Mississippi they're both pushing south. Grant gets there first. Um, on the other side, who you got? You got Johnson and Beauregard. Beauregard's mobile, huh? That guy's getting all over the place, huh? Uh, well, yeah, and uh, you know when you Beauregard uh, after you know at the beginning, yeah, he's he's there at the beginning, but then you know it's you start to notice that anybody that's sent to the Western Theater is like what we call like the. The land of the misfit toys. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like getting stationed in a, in in Siberia if you're, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> if you're uh, in the uh, Russian army. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so a lot of if if you're gonna shit can somebody, you send them west. Mm-hmm. Now, like when you look at like the guys, like yeah, you know, we talk like you talk about Grant. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, Grant. You know, uh, of coming up. You know, when you look at it, of like, man, what was Ulysses S. Grant doing in eighteen sixty? The, the, you know, the guy was a complete, pretty much a, he was he was having a, a hard time in life at that point. Uh, 
Uh, you know, I mean, he, he had fought West Point guy, uh, fought in the Mexican-American War, got sent out to California. You know what I mean? He, you know, there's folks talking about, you know, a drinking problem uh, that Grant has. Of course, you know, Grant had lost a son. Uh, you know, so a lot of the times when I, you know, I've, I've never lost a, a child, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to have a, a pretty big effect on me. Uh, and, and how I'm going to handle that, I, you know, I, I really don't know. Um, so, you know, you got this guy, Ulysses S. Grant, that's, that's showing promise, uh, but he's selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis before the war breaks out to try to support his family because he's just he's not really good in the mm-hmm. civilian world, like mm-hmm. uh, being a business guy. He's mm-hmm. just not he's, – he's struggling, uh, right. you know what I mean, which we, there's, there's tons of people, man, that, that struggle. Right. Uh, and, and But at least he's like, he's selling firewood and stuff. So when the war breaks out, he's like, I'm back in. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, whew. so let, let's head out and let, let's see if I can. Of course, but now you got your reputation. You know what I mean? So uh, what's interesting is, is like, you know, when we talked about Grant, you know, then we talked about Sherman. You know, we talked about Sherman earlier. You know, he's crazy. Grant's a drunk. <laughs> uh, you know, but the two of them kind of stick together. And it's like, you know, I mean, this dude ends up on a $50 bill. He's the president of the United States. He becomes the chief of all the army. I mean, I hate to be a spoiler alert of like Grant, but from a dude selling firewood on the streets to, to of what he rose to, you know, perseverance comes to mind. Like people might talk shit about him. He's going to show up and he's going to come to work. Uh, so but he's got a lot of struggles to deal with. Like he's never been in charge of like this many people. So, you know, Grant's going to uh, make his way down uh, and he's having some success. Uh, he's working with uh, with the naval uh, captain foot. Uh, and they're actually working together, uh, Army and Navy, which is, you know, kind of odd. You know, you can bring in uh, naval ships and bombard, uh, you know what I mean, which is pretty cool. Naval gunfire, if you will, uh, brings them in and, and grants the ground force, but he's using them as transportation. So, you know, between like uh, Grant and Foot, I, I think they're working really well together. Uh, but then, you know, you talked about uh, with, with Buell. So he's got he's another Army commander. So they're both they're like peers. So neither one of them work with each other. Uh, and you know how that kind of works with peers sometimes? It's like you go to your peer for some support, and he's like, dude, I don't work for you. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I got to get shit from the boss. Tell me what to do. Uh, so, yeah, he is trailing uh, Grant. But, they're, you know, everybody's focused on the, on, the, on the same mission. I mean, when you look at the overall arching strategy uh, of, of Abraham Lincoln, it was preserve the union. So that's his message to everybody. The only thing we're going to do is, is preserve the union. So these guys, they're out moving, you know, they're, they're learning along the way. Uh, and you got Ulysses S. Grant. So they got, you know, and you've been to Corinth. I've been to Corinth. Uh, you know, I think you probably had to do the same thing. I, you got to fly into Memphis and drive a couple hours over because there's just no easy way to get to Corinth. But when, when you look at like the supply depots of railways and waterways and you're trying to supply these armies of thousands of people and you look at the western theater of the you know the tennessee river the cumberland river the ohio and the mississippi we kind of look at it as like where are you going to store this stuff so if you're going to bring it in by boat, so you got you got Nashville, that's a big hub. You know, you got uh, Memphis, that's a big hub, and then you've got like you know where you go north to south. So you know, Corinth is like right at the very top of Mississippi, just right below 
that southeastern Tennessee kind of area. And it's just not an easy place to get to. So if you're going to come in and you're going to strategically, one, you got to get all your people there. So Grant's going to put them on a boat. They're going to float down the Tennessee River. And then you got to look for a landing. Well, and of course, you don't want to land too close because you want to get everybody off the boat before, you know, any of the Confederates come. Because if you're just sitting on the boat, uh, that's going to make it pretty easy for the Confederacy. Uh, so they're going to pick Pittsburgh Landing. And even still to this day, like you said, I mean, there's nothing in Shy- Little Church. That's it. I mean, like, I mean, I'm even trying to think in like modern day today, like there, there's nothing. I mean, there's a Hagee's Catfish Hotel like down down the road a bit, uh, and that's about it. Great catfish, uh, but other than that, there's just nothing there. So he's going to bring his folks in, and they're going to they're going to offload right there at Pittsburgh Landing, and and that landing. I mean, even if you and I like looking at it today, it's like man, that's a you know insert and extract is usually the worst places to get hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, coming in, so it's like one of those landings downriver, and then it's like, you know, the cliffs over where I'm staying. Mm-hmm. So it's like getting dropped off there, and then I've got this little straight up ahead. So I'm already there, – there's high ground above Pittsburgh Landing. Uh, you know what I mean? So getting folks off and then getting them up on the landing and then establishing a foothold is is his first priority – and uh, and nothing against Ulysses S. Grant. Like again, man, this is uh, this is right at the beginning. Uh, but Grant's going to kind of go up there, and there's not going to be a lot of order and discipline going on. Uh, it's kind of like, hey guys, get off the boat. You know what I mean? They go up there and they they set up camp. You know what I mean? Because this is their their first rodeo. <laughs> like they. Have, I mean, they're having fun on the way down, riding on the boat ride. You know what I mean? They're coming in. They're like, oh, man, this is going to be an easy day. You know what I mean? So I think that their their expectations just, like, really aren't there. You know what I mean? So they're all going to get – of course, they don't know either. I mean, look at the last war they fought in. It was the Mexican-American War, and we saw how that went. Uh, you know what I mean? It was We were pretty – other than – you know, like the Battle of San Pascal that took place out here with with uh, Carney uh, and Pico kind of put the wood to him. And, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, that little guy, Kit Carson, uh, that got him out of it when he stalked from out there all the way into the bay uh, to link up uh, with the Navy to get relief to come out to get him. So these guys are getting off the boat, and, and there's not really a lot of order and discipline. So it's kind of like if I was going to describe it like what it looked like, it looked like a very unorganized yard save. <laughs> So that's what they do. They're they're there now. Meanwhile, on the other side, uh, you got you got General Johnson, and he's you know the, this is the guy that we kicked off this. This is the speech. You know this guy is engaged, right? And he tells his troops, uh, you know, before the battle tonight, tonight we will water our horses in the Tennessee River. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So this guy is ready to get it on, and. Well, and they meet. And a great book and a great account of this is Company H by uh, Sam R. Watkins. This guy is a a Confederate soldier, and he's got a great first-person account to kind of explain what's going on and what this looks like this first day. So here we go. This was the first big battle in which our regiment had ever been engaged. I do not pretend to tell of what command distinguished itself 
of heroes, of blood and wounds, of shrieks and groans, of brilliant charges, of cannon captured, etc. I was but a private soldier. And if I happened to look to see if I could find anything out, eyes right, guide center was the order. Close up, guide right, halt, forward, right oblique, left oblique, halt, forward, guide center, eyes right, dress up promptly in the rear, steady, double quick, charge bayonets, fire at will, is about all that a private soldier ever knows of battle. And when I read that for the first time, that's just like horrifying, right? You're in this massive battle and you're just hearing orders. And we, you know, when you and I marched, well, when I marched in, in, in Navy boot camp, when you marched in Marine Corps boot camp, and you learn how to guide right, and you're kind of out of the corner of your eye, you're looking at the guy to the right of you to make sure you're staying even with him. You can't, it's, it's hard to take that mentality and then you take it into like a combat situation where there's, you know, right, ball coming at you, guys getting their legs blown off, horrifying. And that's what this guy's dealing with. He says, uh, he can see the smoke rise and the flash of battle of the enemy's guns, and he can hear the whistle of the mini and cannonballs, but he has got to load and shoot as hard as he can tear and ram cartridge, or we'll soon find out, like the Irishman who had been shooting blank cartridges when a ball happened to strike him, and he hollowed out, faith, pat, and be jabbers. Them fellows are shooting bullets. But I nevertheless remember many things that came under my observation in this battle. I remember a man by the name of Smith stepping deliberately out of the ranks and shooting his finger off to keep out of the fight. So you guys got, he's documenting some cowardice. A guy shooting off his own finger so he doesn't have to fight. Of another poor fellow who was accidentally shot and killed by the discharge of another person's gun. And of others suddenly taken sick with colic. As we, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. As we advanced on the edge of battlefield, we saw a big fat colonel of the 23rd Tennessee Regiment, badly wounded, whose name, if I remember correctly, was Matt Martin. He said to us, give them goss, boys. That's right, my brave first Tennessee. Give them hail, Columbia. We halted but a moment. And I said, Colonel, where are you wounded? He answered in a deep bass voice, my son, I am wounded in the arm, in the leg, in the head, in the body, and in another place, which I have a delicacy in mentioning. That is what the old gallant colonel said. About noon, a courier dashed up and ordered us to go forward and support General Bragg's center. We had to pass over the ground where troops had been fighting all day. I had heard and read of battlefields, seen pictures of battlefields, of horses and men, of cannon and wagons, all jumbled together, while the ground was strewn with dead and dying and wounded. But I must confess that I never realized the pomp and circumstance of the thing called glorious war until I saw this. Men were lying in every conceivable position the dead lying with their eyes wide open, the wounded begging piteously for help, and some waving their hats and shouting for us to go forward. It all seemed to me a dream. I seemed to be in some sort of haze when sizz, 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 the mini balls from the Yankee line began to whistle around our ears, and I thought of the Irishman when he said, sure enough, those fellows are shooting bullets. Down we would drop first one fellow and then another, either killed or wounded. 
when we were ordered to charge bayonets. I had been feeling mean all morning, as if I had stolen a sheep. But when the order to charge was given, I got happy. I felt happier than a fellow does when he professes religion at a big Methodist camp meeting. I shouted. It was fun then. Everybody looked happy. We were crowding them. One more charge, their lines waver and break. They retreat in wild confusion. We were jubilant. We were triumphant. Officers could not curb the men to keep them in line. Discharge after discharge was poured into the retreating line. The federal dead and wounded covered the ground. When, in the very midst of our victory, here comes an order to halt. What? Halt after today's victory? Sidney Johnson killed, General Gladden killed, and a host of generals and other brave men killed, and the whole Yankee army in full retreat? These four letters, H-A-L-T. Oh, how harsh they did break upon our ears. The victory was complete, but the word halt turned victory into defeat. So, it's mayhem out there. And... uh, and like you said, you know, this is seeing the elephant. These guys are seeing this this hardcore combat for the first time. And as you can hear in that description from Watkins, uh, you know, the 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 Confederates dominate day one. They dominate. They push, and they get the upper hand. Um, they they push Grant all the way back to Pittsburgh Landing. I mean, they they push him back. Uh, he mentions, Sam Watkins mentions that General Johnson's dead. So he had been wounded, uh, hitting the, hitting the femoral artery and bleeds out. And Beauregard, after this first day, so the first day the, the, you know, the, the, the Union forces had pushed in from the the Tennessee, but now they get pushed all the way back, and uh, Beauregard thinks they won, and actually sends the message out to Jefferson Jefferson Davis sends a message to Jefferson Davis saying, "Hey, we we just won a big battle here." Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, he's he's like you know, it's it's basically going into halftime, and he he's claiming victory. Uh, you know, when one I, I love uh, the Company H uh, Sam White because it's a it's a a first account uh, from a soldier that's just a, a rifleman. Uh, you know what I mean? And, yep. and his perspective, and when he talks about you know, like later on, we'll talk about Braxton Bragg, and I mean that that guy is a he's a character uh, within himself. Uh, it's amazing he got a base named after him, but uh, you know they didn't call JD to ask about naming of bases. Uh, but, you know, when you look at it, uh, of Bragg, I mean, he's talking about, you know, those numerous assaults of what he came into behind. So, you know, Braxton Bragg, there was this, there's a section of the battle uh, that's called the Hornet's Nest uh, down there. And, and it's like uh, it's, you know, 
if you could imagine, like Pittsburgh Landing's been there. You know, it's it's all farm country. I mean, you've been in that region before. That's down there. So when when folks are coming in, there's like these old like farming roads and and the farm fields. So if you could imagine, just over time, you've got you know the the wagons have been running these same little two track rails, and they start to get like sunken down a little bit. So it just gives you just a, a little bit of that micro terrain defilade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, uh, you know, Prentice and his guys, he's going to put his division that's there. And, I mean, Brax and Bragg's just going to – he's going to knock against that that surface numerous times uh, throughout the battle. Just frontal assault. Just, just frontal. I mean, just, yeah, okay, just – okay, you, you hit a – you hit a – you know, you, you hit a surface. Why not try to find a gap? Like, where's the gap in the road? And he's going to numerous times – he's going to send them up there – uh, and, and they, of course, you know, you, you beat your head that many times against the wall and you just keep throwing resources. So that's what kind of Sam is seeing, just the, the carnage uh, that's taking place. Like I said, I mean, nobody had seen this kind of this kind of carnage on a battlefield. And this is day one. And yeah, and the, the Confederates are, are going to push them back, but at a cost. Like they're, they're going to take a huge cost for this. Uh, and again, you know, Johnston. Now, when you look at Albert Sidney, there's a lot of folks, like when you go down there to Shiloh, they're like, but well, J.D. Mean, a, a commander should never put himself at, at that kind of risk, that close. Uh, you know, but there's a point in time to where the commander's got to get out of the tent uh, and the troops, he, he needs to be seen. And he's going to put himself at risk. And, yeah, I mean, he's going to take a shot uh, and, and in the saddle. It's not going to unhorse him. He's basically just going to – but he never leaves the field which kind of says something about Johnson, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, of, of getting injured. I mean, you got other folks that are looking to just, you know, get a scratch and, and they're out. You shooting know what I mean? the finger off, yeah. Yeah, shooting the finger off, that kind of stuff. So Johnson knows that his place in battle, one, if you could imagine with, you know, you've got these novice folks that are out there, this is their first battle, and then they're going to overrun the Union. And, you know, and like I said earlier, like, you know, Grant's kind of running a yard sale up there. So these dudes are brewing up ramen, you know what I mean? They're cooking up some hard tack. They got a little bit of fat. And then these guys are going to overrun them, and they're probably hungry, and they're seeing all this free gear. You know what I mean? Like, gear adrift is a gift. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, if your name ain't on it, I'm taking it. These are the, so the Confederate troops push through, overrun much of what the Union's got set up, and there's just looting about to go down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're <laughs> looting. You know what I mean? It's like, man, that's a better rifle than the one I got. I'm taking that one. Uh, you know, so – so they're kind of looting, and, and, and Johnson and them are actually trying to stop the looting because it's distracting from the battle. Like, okay, look, man, we got it, dude. Like, they got a lot of cool stuff, but let's keep, like, let's keep pushing them. And Johnson actually, you know, it's recorded. You know, they talk about Johnson. He, he, he ends up taking a tin cup because he doesn't, you know, these guys are, like, they're just a bunch of privates, man. They really don't know what they're doing. Uh, you know, they're just out there following orders, man, and, and they're putting them into this this first big battle. And he takes a cup as if like he's gonna he's gonna loot along with them. Uh, you know what I mean? And he raises that cup, and then he rides the line with that cup, and and he's tinking the tops of their bayonets, kind of inspiring them of he's out there with them uh, on the battle, and and he ends up you know taking a shot. 
and then bleeding out. And it's not one of his staff officers, kind of like it's like me looking across the unit. It's like, Jocko, man, you're looking kind of pale about right now. And, you know, you're bleeding out. They pull him down into a, into a little ravine, get him out of sight of everybody and pull him off the saddle. And, you know, he's, he's done training. He, he dies right there on the field. Uh, so then now you've got, uh, you know, P.T. Beauregard, uh, basically the second in command is now. And it, it's kind of almost as if, like, you know, when you look at it in the readings, when Beauregard kind of finds out that Johnson's dead, you'd see me have a little bit more remorse of, like, I mean, Johnson's a good commander. You know what I mean? But, you know, P.T. Beauregard, like you said, I mean, and Sam Watkins calls it out of, like, why? what's this halt? Like, why aren't we just crushing this army? Why are we not keep pushing forward? Because you just lost the commander. And when no one's there giving a command, people just stop because they don't know <laughs> – uh, you know what I mean? Even though, like, I, it, it kind of boggles me a little bit because if you tell me, like, if you're like, hey, J.D., we're going to water our horses on the Tennessee River, that even if I don't hear from you no. for the entire rest of the day. You know what to do. I know exactly I'll what to do. i see you the Tennessee River. Uh, yeah, I'll be there watering my horse, man. You know what I mean? You get there and be like, hey, Jocko, so what like, up? It's the ultimate commander's intent. intent right yeah, I got, I got it. You don't have to tell me anything else. I just know I need to get to the Tennessee River, and anything in between me and the Tennessee River, I need to kill. Mm. Period. And we, I got my horse. I'm at the Tennessee River. We're there. Because, you know, they, they also, you know, they, they're worried about, you know, this guy of like, okay, you know, because just like gathering and tell, okay, where's Buell? Because there's another army out there. I mean, that's a that's a huge factor to anybody, you know, whether it's Johnson, whether it's Beauregard, you know, you've got another army out there moving around like that. That's a that's another force you have to contend yeah. with. Yeah, that's like you're on the football field and there's another team that's going to come and get on the field against you. Yeah. You want to finish off the guys that are there. Yeah. They don't do that. No. That's where this halt comes in. And these guys kind of just, they, they stop. They halt. They hold up. And and while this is happening, uh, I mean, the first of all, the, the union brings in these gunboats for the night and starts shelling which is apparently ineffective other than the fact it's just mayhem and noise and you know some, I'm sure some casualties you're not sleeping very well and you're getting shelled even if it's inaccurate uh, you got Nathan Bedford Forrest <laughs> Nathan Bedford Forrest this guy he's out doing reconnaissance and and he actually discovers Buell like, like he finds out that Buell's coming. Oh yeah, yeah. He and starts it. trying to tell everybody, Buell's coming. Here comes this other army. Hey, boss, Buell's coming. No, the whole other army's coming our way. This isn't good. No one listens to him. Yeah, and remember, uh, you know, last night when we were kind of chitting, chatting about uh, about Forrest. Remember, like he put on Union uniforms and and got like in close mm. in reconnaissance. So he's got eyes on Buell coming in, and, and he's reporting it up his chain. Now, you know, Nathan is not a, a not a West Point grad. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's not in the club. Uh, you know what I mean? He's not very well educated. Well, all right. You got, we got to talk about, about Nathan Forrest. Tell us a little bit about this guy because he's a character. He, he is. Uh, 
Well, you know, I like, uh, I'd like to explain to a lot of folks, like, nobody really knew who Nathan Bedford Forrest was until Tom Hanks came out with the movie Forrest Gump. And right at the beginning of the movie, you know what I mean? You got, you know, Tom Hanks, and he's talking about his great, 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 great grandfather that, you know what I mean, fought in the Civil War and was a general officer. And then he rode around with sheets on and stuff like that. And everybody was kind of like sitting there with their iPad, and they were like, hmm, let me Google search that real quick. Wow, this guy, uh, he's got a little bit of a backstory to him. Uh, so Nathan, you know, Tennessee guy, uh, not educated uh, formally. Um, but at the beginning of the war, when they're when they're calling to arms, uh, Nathan Bedford. I mean, he's he's first one out. Like, yep, but I'm I'm coming in. I'm in, coach. He's not educated, but he's wealthy, right? Oh, he's wealthy. He's a, he's a millionaire in 1860 from the slave trade. From slave trade, and he shows up. No mil- real military experience. None. But he's ready. To, he's ready to go. He, he he's a private. He just wants to sign up and just make me a rifleman. Uh, I, I just want to go kill Yankees uh, because you know, this is going to go against my way of life. And, of course, the folks that are there, like Nathan is well-known. Uh, you know what I mean? That kind of guy banging that kind of money back then and, and he's, you know, of what he's doing uh, with inside the, the slave trade. And, and uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a, a very known individual. So, of course, you know, the folks are in there and they're like, hey, man, that's Nathan out there. Now, of course, like nobody like, you know, because Nathan doesn't come from prominent family, you know what I mean? Like dirt poor, like the guys just doesn't come from uh, from a prominent family. So even though he's got money, you know what I mean? It's new money. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know what I mean? He's not like old money south. uh, You know what I mean? It's like been around for like a long time. We all, you know, it's Virginia, like where I live. We still got old money, Virginia. Uh, so he's not old money, he's new money, but they're just like, hey, man, you you can't be a private. So they're like, well, the dude's got a whole bunch of money. We don't have a lot of money. We're starting up, so why don't you, like, stand up a cavalry regiment, and how about spend your money and outfit all of them? And Nathan's like, okay, I'm down with that. Make me a colonel. Yep, I'll, I'll take this on. So uh, Nathan, he's he, he he doesn't have the military background, so he doesn't know that like what he's supposed to be doing so like all he knows is is like his job i'm cavalry i i do reconnaissance but he's a little different than other cavalry guys because he likes to fight uh, and he's got no qualms uh, about leading charges he's not the guy that's going to be found about because again he doesn't know so while everybody else is halting and they're looting the camps you know, getting out the bacon, breaking out the banjos. Nathan Bedford's running reconnaissance effort, and his son's with him. Uh, you know what I mean? And they're going to put on Union uniforms. They're going to get close in reconnaissance, and they're going to see Buell coming in, and he's going to report these uh, up to higher, and, and nobody's listening to him. Uh, you know, that other guy I talked about uh, that was at the at the hornet's nest uh, with the Union that was giving Braxton Bragg a lot of that resistance was, was Prentice. Uh, and and Prentice, uh, he, he, he was commanding the 6th Division of the Army of Tennessee, uh, working for Grant uh, there that first day. Prentice gets captured. So he's a prisoner of war. And he's actually in, in the camp, in the tents, you know, because, you know, back then, of course, they're going to segregate. You know what I mean? Enlisted guys, you're going to a certain prisoner of war camp. Mm-hmm. The officers, you get to hang out in the tent with us because we all went to West Point together. We'll catch you up. 
totally different uh, you know aspect to being a prisoner of war uh, when you look at officer versus the, the enlisted side. So Prentice is literally in the tent and even telling the officers that, hey, dude, Buell is on his way. Like, he's he's coming, like, now. And they're like, dude, you're full of shit, basically. Like, you know what I mean? Like, no, he's not. We've got reports. He's over in, like, Decatur, Alabama area. And he goes, look, dude, whatever reports you're getting is wrong. You're going to see tomorrow. So not only are they getting, like, told from their own reconnaissance efforts, they're getting told from a prisoner of war that they just fought against all day, and he's telling them. And they're still not taking any of this into regard. And that night, like you said, so they're going to pull up two naval gunboats and they're going to start lobbing naval gunfire throughout the night and Buell is going to show up at Pittsburgh Landing. And, of course, he's seeing that mayhem. I mean, you got these guys that are that are from Grant and, I mean, they're literally running for their lives. I mean, they got folks that are hanging on to – remember, I told you about the embankment. So it would be mm-hmm. like us going out there, you know what I mean, like right across on the cliffs – and, like, I am so scared for my life that I just ran through San Diego and I'm just hanging on to the sides of the cliff just to get away from this, man. I mean, it's complete and utter fear for their lives of what they've seen that day on the first day of battle. So then you got this other Army commander, Buell, shows up. Well, you know how those guys are. Like, <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> What'd you screw up? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then of course you know, anytime you got a bad day, it just starts torrential downpour. So right around like twenty two hundred at night, man, it's just you know pissing out of a boot. I mean, it's just not a good day. It's raining on Grant's parade, and and who comes over? You know, Tecumseh Sherman is there with Grant, and and you know Grant doesn't go get on a boat. He doesn't even get in a tent. I mean, it's like. It's like literally like right above Pittsburgh Landing. Like there's these just large oaks that are still sitting there. And every time I'm standing there, I can always imagine just Grant sitting there just underneath cover. He's in his wool coat and it's just right in. He's just thinking about his day's events. And, you know, Tecumseh Sherman comes over and it's just not a good day. And he looks at, at Sherman and he's like, we'll whoop him tomorrow, Cump. Yeah, you know, so even though Grant, you know, ran a yard sale, he did that. He he he's owning it. And the only good thing about when Buell shows up with with his army, even though they're peers, they both have the same mindset. They're attacking in the morning. Like we're going offensive uh, against this Confederacy. So uh, you know that, that shows that that gives you a little glimpse into this guy. They call Ulysses S. Grant. That I mean, he just got routed. They took all of his stuff. So I couldn't imagine the morale of the private soldier at that time. Like, you know what I mean? Like any time like you ever been like you're without your gear and and it's cold, wet, and miserable yeah, yeah. and you don't have your stuff. Like JD's just not a happy camper anymore. <laughs> uh so that that's what happens. I mean, the next day, Buell and Grant, even though they're both independent commanders of their own troops they both go on the attack and they're able to push they're able to push the confederates all the way back to to corinth now this character nathan bedford forrest he gets assigned to hold rear guard and 
uh, little excerpt here from the book, which I actually read from already today. It's called it's called Shiloh, Shiloh in Hell Before Night, and there's a section in here worth reading. So uh, the Confederates are retreating. Nathan Bedford Forrest and his troops are holding rear guard, you know, just trying to keep the pressure off the troops, the Confederates, as they retreat. And this is going to the book. As the federal skirmishers began picking their path through the fallen timbers and became somewhat disorganized and momentarily preoccupied, Forrest seemed to sense it was time to act. Shouting to his men, charge, he led the way as the cavalry thundered toward Sherman's men. Some of the Union skirmishers panicked and fled. Others were blasted by shotguns and pistols as the rebel horsemen rode down, rode them down. The fury of the charge also turned back the 4th Illinois Cavalry, and Forrest, seemingly carried away by exhilaration of combat, was waving his sword and shouting, charge, charge, as he kept after them. His men, seeing the strong front of the oncoming brigade, were not following, however, and Forrest was galloping alone directly into the ranks of the main federal force. He should have been killed. Federal infantry swarmed all about him, trying to shoot him or drag him from his horse. The horse was kicking and rearing. Forrest was slashing right and left. Even when a soldier managed to place his gun up against Forrest's hip and pull the trigger, the blast lifting the commander high in his saddle and the bullet lodging against his spine, the action did not unhorse him or stop him. Turning his horse around and clearing a path with his saber, Forrest plowed back in the direction from which he came. As he was emerging from the mass of blue infantry, he reached down, grabbed an enemy soldier by the collar, swung the man onto the horse, and used him as a shield as he galloped away. Once out of range of the Union fire, Forrest flung the man to the ground and rode up to the ridge to the point where his command was waiting in amazement. Sherman, too, was amazed, as well as disgusted. But that was neither the first nor the last time that that devil Forrest, as Sherman came to call him, cheated death, though perhaps never more spectacularly than at the fallen timbers. So that's what this guy, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, he earned a hell of a reputation that day. Now, before we get too excited about the heroics of Nathan Bedford Forrest, we also have to note that this is the guy that founded and started and was the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. And so when Forrest Gump talks about his great-great-great-great-grandfather and talks about him riding around in sheets after he fought in the Civil War, that's what he's talking about. Um, but with that, they were the Confederates retreated. They were defeated. This is the battle that, um, you know, like like you were saying, this this was sort of now now we're in the big leagues. At the end of the battle, killed, wounded, and missing totaled twenty four thousand between both sides. And there's a book about the Battle of Shiloh. It's called Seeing the Elephant. And it's written by a guy named Joseph Allen, or two guys, Joseph Allen Frank and George A. Reeves. And they have a foot footnote about this expression, seeing the elephant, which I think I've mentioned already. 
And they say in this footnote, seeing the elephant was a euphemism for experiencing combat, the earliest source of which can be traced to the third century BC when Alexander the Great's soldiers defected, defeated King Porus's elephant-born troops in the Indus Valley. Seeing the elephant. Well, the war had taken a turn at this point, and it was about to get worse. With that, we will continue this journey on the next Civil War excursion. And if you want to support this podcast, go to jockostore.com, jockofuel.com, originusa.com, echelonfront.com, and theomna.com. And until next time, this is JD and Jocko. Out.